Welcome to Deepen with Pastor Joby Martin. The Church of 1122 is a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're praying this message helps you deepen your relationship with Him. Now let's dive in. All right, welcome back to the Deep End Podcast. You know it's going to be good because they've both already opened their Bibles. Here we go. <laughs> they are ready. We are on uh, chapter two. It's our third episode, but we're on chapter two, the paralytic. Um, this is when Jesus is gathered in his home, a home. I don't know if it's his home, a home. And four friends are trying to get their other friend who's paralyzed to Jesus. So they lower him through the roof. And before we get into the nuts and bolts of it, the chapter starts, I think the first line is, have you ever been desperate? And I was like, oh, we're in for a chapter here. So why did you decide to start with that sentence? <clears throat> um, to shake up all the folks that have become familiar with events in the Bible like this one. Because, like, if you grew up in Sunday school, um, your mind can immediately go to, like, flannel graph or veggie tales, mm -hmm. depending on your generation. And you already know the ending. And you're just, like, looking for the application. But these, the the four friends of this paralytic guy, they're, they are in a pa place of utter desperation. Mm -hmm. Not even for themselves, but on behalf of their buddy. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it takes that level of desperation to lead you to do the kind of things that they did. Mm. And honestly, man, our not our individual church necessarily, but man, the Western church has just grown complacent. You know, it's like the enemy has just kind of put us to sleep with a little binky and a lullaby mm -hmm. and does not want us to wake up with the reality that you and I have friends that are spiritually or even physically paralyzed, and what we need to be doing is whatever it takes to bring them to Jesus. Mm. That's good. What about you, Charles? What is the word desperation? Why was that word? Why is that the word? You're a words guy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've been there a couple of times. The one that comes to mind at the, at the moment is um, my brother, Rick Crowley, who was healed of seizures and a brain tumor. And this past uh, two weeks ago was 11 years seizure-free. Wow. And we have scans from Mayo showing a tumor, and then we have scans showing no tumor. And, wow. and we, there were several of us, not just me, but a lot of us walked with him through his healing. And my, my memory of that time was desperation, and we really had nowhere to go. And he didn't, and to his great credit, the Lord just gave him a courage and he walked through it with real grace. He and Julia both did, but it was just, I mean, and, and yes, since then and before then, yes, I've known moments of desperation, but that one just comes to mind. Yeah, it was good. a, we were totally, completely and absolutely, because the doctors were confounded. Mm. They had nothing for him. I remember us being in Mayo, they'd shaved his head and they put all these, um, things, electrodes on his head. He had about 60 of them. And when you looked at him, he had all these electrodes and these these silver things hanging. He looked like a predator. He looked like, he seriously looked like that. And it struck us and they, it struck us in that moment, like the fifth or sixth floor of Mayo, these people cannot figure out what's going on with him. And um, we were pretty desperate. Mm. What about you, Pastor Joby? Has there been time you've been desperate on behalf of someone else? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've talked about my buddy Ben Williams, you know, um, 
in the book, I used kind of a comical illustration of losing JP at Dick's Sporting mm-hmm. Goods for a little while, but it wasn't funny sure, when you yeah. think he's gone, right? <clears throat> um, you know, I think one of the most uh, kind of like misunderstood texts in the scriptures is from Psalms when the psalmist says, as the deer pants for running water, so my soul longs for you. And part of the reason that is misunderstood is because like we put a picture of a deer and a stream, and I love deer, but the reason a deer would be panting is because they're running. Mm-hmm. Like, and like a running deer that is trying to stay alive mm-hmm. just feels like if I could just get a little <clears throat> sip of water, I could take a few more steps and stay alive. That's what our souls ought to feel like in in a desperate wanting for a touch of God. This um, chapter, it's kind of hitting me in a really personal way right now. I um, So I'm currently pregnant, which is fun and exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and one of my very longtime friends, she's also my one more, um, we were the same amount of pregnant, which I don't really know how else to say it. We got pregnant at the same time. Due dates within one week of each other, which was going to be so fun. Like who... That's kind of the dream to have babies with your good friends. And kind of the whole week of Israel, I was just praying about her and wanting to share my faith more boldly with her. Sometimes it's hard to share our faith with the people we're closest to, like family members or good friends. And I was like, you know, when I get home, I know she's going to ask me about the trip and I'm going to share the gospel with her. And she texted me on the last night of the trip and said that she had a miscarriage. And it's hard because I'm feeling desperate in a way I've never really experienced. One, because I'm heartbroken for my friend. Two, because I know she's going to look at my growing belly and think that's what I am supposed to be, exactly the same. And it's kind of brought me to this place of like, Lord, the only thing I can see through this, through her losing, and she doesn't even... Well, there's a lot of things to it, but it's like, Lord, may she, may somehow this point her to you. Mm-hmm. And um, so I kind of feel like a friend holding a mat right now of a friend that maybe doesn't even know all of the, like doesn't even know the gospel implications. But I don't know, this chapter is just, it's really real for me right now. Well, thank God she has a friend like you in her life because <clears throat> I think one of the biggest dangers today is that so many people, when they find themselves in a place of utter desperation, when they're paralyzed on a mat and don't know what to do, so many people don't have four friends that would pick Mm -hmm. up the corner of their mat and tote them to the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's almost like one of those things, when you read it, maybe you don't think quite as deeply about how messy and hard it was for the friends. Like, they had to scrape away the roof that was mud and everyone's getting dirty and they have to carry a grown man on a mat. And the mat itself. I mean, we'll talk right. about this at the Pool of Bethesda. This is not a stretcher. This is not a clean <clears throat> yoga mat that they inserted nylon cords right. into. The man can't get off the mat to go to the bathroom. I mean, it's all right there. They're just carrying the man in his mess. Yeah, yeah. 
We talk about that Jesus' miracles, it's not just about the miracle. It always points to something else. It's always to point to the greatest miracle. And so as we continue to study the miracles, why is this just so important to keep at the forefront? Like this isn't just about four friends lowering a guy into a house to get healed. Well, Jesus in, in all of his miracles, it's not just to demonstrate his raw power. It's to always point to his redemptive purpose mm. every single time. It reminds me just like how we do church. There's lights and we got the music and you could come in and think that that's what it is. But our goal every single time, every single service, when that clock hits zero, I mean, not even that, from the moment you walk in the door, our entire goal is to lead you to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I think some people can get really caught up in the other things and not see, oh, this is all pointing to a way bigger thing than just this experience. So we talked about good friends. Um, have you guys ever been in a place where we talked about you being a friend on someone else's behalf, but what about someone being a friend on your behalf in a season of hard? I've mentioned this before. I, I, Got hurt playing football at Georgia Tech. Transferred to Florida State and was roommates with one of my best friends, Dave Wainer. He's an attorney here in Jack's Beach. One of the first days in Tallahassee, it's you know 114 degrees in the shade. And we go to Tallahassee Mall and I'm wrestling with a whole bunch of identity issues. And somebody flings a cassette tape at my head and I fling it back at them and tell them they're number one in my heart and give them the hand signal that goes along with it. And next thing I know, the car stops and five men jump out of the Bronco and we get in a street fight in the middle. And I, I honestly, I wanted it. I was so mad and angry and my dream had been shattered. And so I, you know, I, I finish whatever fight is going on and I, I get in the mall, I get up to the door and I thought, because they were all on me, I thought Dave was already inside. And um, I turn around and he's in a fetal position and five guys are kicking him. Mm. Mall cop comes, breaks up the thing, they run, paramedics get there, Dave's covered and, you know, his own, he's just bleeding and he's got stuff shoved up his nose. I mean, it's, I, I, it's the worst thing ever. <laughs> And um, they finally, we get in the car. He didn't have insurance, so we didn't go to the hospital. And they cut him loose. And we get in the car, and he's literally sitting. I'm driving now because he can't. So he's sitting in the seat next to me with his head back, and he's got these things up his nose. And his eyes, his eyes are like swollen shut. And all he says is, Charles, and I know it's coming. I know what he's about to ask me. Did you shoot those guys a bird? <laughs> And I'm like, yes, Dave, I did that. We get back to the house and I'm feeling about, you know, this big. And finally, I just, I mean, I, my whole, all my idols are coming crashing down. Anyway, I go in later that night and I, all I can say is, Dave, I just walk in. He's still, same shirt, swollen, nothing's improved. And I just, all I said was, Dave, I'm, I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? And he just kind of, you know, open one semi-shut eye and says, yes, of course. That didn't make it all better. His shirt didn't all of a sudden get clean. But when you look at these guys carrying this paralyzed dude, I was the dude on the mat, very much, just broken, crippled. 
And my buddy forgave me when he didn't have to. And it did a thing in me. Like it did a freeing thing in me that I can't explain. Mm, that's good. What about you? Um, well, one of the interesting things about coming back to this is I taught on this at our church a bunch of years ago, six years, seven years ago or something. And I just asked our church, do you have four friends that would carry you? Write their names down right now. And I named those four friends. And then in reviewing this, you know, is um, it's crazy, man. One of them that I name is Lars Peterson. He was at that point the chairman of the board of elders. <clears throat> um, I named another friend. I named Ben Williams, and I named Bradley Bowen. And then when we came back around to write this as a chapter in the book, honest to goodness, last I'd have thought. There's no way I thought last man standing is Lawrence Peterson. <laughs> He's the old guy in the group. Everybody else is young and fun and healthy and all that. And praise God, Ben Williams is alive mm-hmm. and well, but went through, fought brain cancer and is still recovering from that, you know? Um, the one guy that I didn't mention, we were he was one of my best friends and just – since from that time to today has walked away from the church. I've heard he's walked away from his faith. He has walked away from us. Mm-hmm. I'm praying that God will reconcile that relationship. But currently, as we sit here right now, it is not reconciled. And I don't even know what to do or what I did if I did a thing. Because mm-hmm. there's, just, there's just no communication back. And then the other one is Brad Bowen. I mean, he's a guy that would do anything for you, man, anything, and did it for us, built all of our churches, and mm-hmm. <clears throat> had the privilege of leading him to Christ and baptizing him on a mission trip and all those things, man. And then and then we were in Scotland a couple of years ago hunting, and he had a heart attack in the highlands. and So it's crazy. Now, you, now I look, and mm-hmm. there's still Lars and Ben, and honestly, God has put two other guys in my life, a guy named Jeff Cop who ran our prison ministry for a while here and Charles Martin, he put in my life and we went through some stuff, not in our own lives. We were going through some stuff as we've put both of these books together. And a lot of what our writing time together was, is just toting each other Mm. to Jesus for him to heal. I feel like a prayer that God loves to answer is, would you give me godly friends? Hmm. I mean, I've seen that play out in my life, particularly after moving back to Jacksonville. And I grew up here. So it's kind of complicated when you move back to the place you grew up, you know, who are you hanging out with? And are you doing the same things as when you grew up here? No. So, and I just prayed, God, would you please give me, you know, three or four really close girlfriends who just know me and who I have fun with. And he's faithful to answer that. And it has made such a difference doing life on life with people and not having to just go through it alone. I mean, it's it's biblical and there's a reason it is because we just weren't meant to do life alone. Yeah, the temptation is just to stop at buddies. Yeah. And buddies will never... Buddies are different than a band of brothers. And... and like, grown married people are the worst, man. Mm-hmm. Dudes are like, well, I got a golfing buddy, and I got a drinking buddy, and I got a, you know, just mm-hmm. buddies. But who's praying for you? Yeah. And women are terrible. Because there's all this, like, 
comparison and judgmentalism and, you know, it, and how do you get beyond just the like surface, oh, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. But if you found yourself on a mat needing help, if you don't have four friends to call, you're not doing it right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Speaking of the friends, so they cut the hole in the roof. Pretty desperate move. Can you paint us a picture of what this would have been like? <clears throat> the realities? Because when I first read this a long time ago, I pictured like pulling a palm frond off of a roof <laughs> and just lowering it in. But what would this have actually been like? Well, there was mud and sticks and um, it, it was it would probably be six or seven, seven layers. They did start with like palm frond, thatch roof kind of thing. <clears throat> and then they would take mud and they have this like heavy roller thing that they'll roll on it and then let the sun bake it so it's like a layer of brick Mm. and then they would do it again and again and again sometimes they use animal feces this is like when jesus says that the salt loses its saltiness throw it away um they they would use that to throw on their roof they would use manure to throw on their roof to pack it and pack it and pack it. And a part of what they're trying to do is like insulate their homes because mm-hmm. they don't have AC and heat, obviously. So this thing is, I mean, there are there are reconstructed homes from the first century to give you kind of a feel mm-hmm. for it. And it would be it would be layer upon layer upon layer, maybe two and a half to three foot thick of that kind of stuff. So it was a slow process. It was an arduous process, and it was a messy process. And it it wouldn't have caught anybody by surprise by the time they get the hole big enough. It's not just in like right. one second, oh, what are you doing? They hear this and feel the disruption at church, by the way. They're just sitting there listening to Jesus teach, and they hear this thing on the roof, and then eventually the hole's big enough where they're dropping the guy through. Yeah, it's wild to think about. Like dust raining down on everyone, debris. And then they're just looking up and a man's being lowered into, and Jesus wasn't surprised. I mean, he can't be surprised, but he's like, oh, this is what we're doing. Yeah, he wasn't offended. I mean, because that's the point. Yeah. The point is to bring people to Jesus, which, you know, every church leader should hear that. Yeah. Because one of the reasons people don't bring people to Jesus anymore at church is because it will often disrupt all the people that already have a seat. And they're already comfortable, and they already have a seat, and it costs too much money to rip the roof off, and it makes them uncomfortable, and so many people are more concerned about their own comfort than they are other people coming to Christ. Good. It's really good. So these friends had to have massive faith um, to ruin a roof, to lower their friend in just to get him close to Jesus. And it got me thinking— how do you have that faith, even if you don't feel it? How do you just continue to choose? I'm going to believe. Because you got it, four friends plus the paralytic. Surely not everyone's on the same page, but somehow they're all in this together. They're like, we're going to get him to Jesus. So how do you, cont- how do you have that faith even when you, when you don't feel it? Maybe? I don't think faith is a feeling. It's a decision. It's an I will obey even when I don't feel like it. I think that's why the Lord told Joshua however many umpteen times, be strong and courageous because he felt weak and afraid. And he mm. just needed to remember that and hear it over and over and over again. But something, at some point, the Levites are going to have to grab the ark and step foot in the river and cross over. Mm. Faith is not a faith is not a feeling. I think that's why David so many times in the Psalms commands his soul. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Praise God. 
mm-hmm. because he knows his feelings are not in line with the word of God and he's got to command them to get in line with the truth because your feelings will lie to you. Hmm. So we don't know this guy's name. Well, you said his name's Pete, but it's not. Pete the paralytic has like a ring to it. <laughs> but Jesus sees him and calls him son. So why would this have been a bit scandalous in Jesus's time? <clears throat> um, we find out from John chapter nine that most people believed that if somebody had some kind of physical ailment, that it was uh, punitive on God's part, that either mm-hmm. they had sinned or that their parents had sinned. And um, according to the Levitical law, if you had any kind of deformity like paralysis, then you were outside of the, the congregation. You couldn't worship in the temple. Something was unclean and broken and wrong with you. And so what's crazy, man, is this man had been called all kinds of things. But the reality is only Jesus gets to tell you who you are. Mm. That means he is not his condition. Mm. And there are some people listening right now that need to hear this. Yeah. Like, you are not primarily your political party, your race. You're not primarily who you're attracted to. You're not your divorce. You're not your abortion. You're not your sin. You're not your past. And oftentimes when I tell our church that, people will say, well, it feel, I feel like I am because that's the biggest thing that's ever happened to me. And I'm like, no, not if you know Jesus. The biggest thing that's ever happened to you is he looks at you and calls you son mm. or daughter. You have this analogy that you make often to the things that the world tries to label us as, like it's handles on our body. And I've been in a, I've been in a season where it felt like there were a lot of handles and the world's just getting the handles. And then as you walk with the Lord, the handles begin to fall off. And you're like, oh, that doesn't define me anymore. And it's so cool to be able to look back and see God's faithfulness. Like, wow, a word that used to, I mean, cripple me at the mention of it has no power over me anymore. And so how do people get from that point? They feel like I've got all these handles, what you're saying, and and I want to, I want the handles to fall off. Um, well, the, the Puritans would call it mortification and vivification. I mean, I think there's you've got to identify the lies of the enemy and do what Paul says to do, to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So I do think it's healthy and helpful for you to identify the the labels or the handles or the tendencies that you have mm-hmm. to lean into the voice of this world. And John Owen says, you can be sil- killing sin or it will be killing you. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we try to like tame our sin instead of kill it. Like we think we can have it under control and and it is an apex predator that wants to take you out. Mm. But it'll look, we live in Florida, so we'll we'll know it it's never enough to pull the weeds in your yard. Mm. The greatest way to attack the weeds in your yard is grow really healthy grass and mm. choke the weeds out. That's good. And so that's what vivification is. It's you just do the things that stir your affections for the Lord. Mm. And you know, the more we turn our eyes to Jesus, look look long in his wonderful face, the things of this world grow strangely dim mm-hmm. in the light of his glory and grace. Anything you'd add to that? Uh, we, you were teaching a couple weeks ago in, in Israel, and um, I had never thought of it this way until you brought it up. But in answer to your question, God, God does a thing and he speaks a word, whether it's son or daughter, but at the tomb, 
when he is the gardener mm. and brokenhearted Mary shows up and he's delivered her from seven demons. And you know, on the tip of her tongue, she's thinking to herself, well, if he, if he couldn't defeat death, then are they coming back? Mm. That's what she's got to be thinking about. And she, she also loved him in a right and healthy and whole way, not in the way the world would have us believe that. But she shows up there and she's got perfect theology. She knows everything. She knows he was sinless. He was wrongly accused, a mock trial, mercilessly beat, crucified, dead, buried. She, she knows all of the information. And he's standing a foot and a half from her face and she cannot see him. Mm. And then he says, Mary. And something happens and she just jumps on him like a spider monkey and I think hugs his neck. Mm. And he says, wait a minute, I haven't been to my father yet. And I think, I think Jesus rerouted and came back because he knew she was brokenhearted. But in answer to the, to the question, I think he spoke a word that resonated in her heart and he was revealed. He revealed himself to her in that moment, same way he does with the woman in the issue of blood. He heals her physically, but it's her, it's her heart that he's after. So then he says, "Daughter." We know she's a daughter of Abraham, so he speaks, "Daughter." Same thing here, son. Mm. He's speaking identity into the very broken places of their hearts. It's yeah. It's our identity can get so confused with our condition, oftentimes. And so how do we fight against that temptation to look at our circumstances, our condition, and say, and lose our identity to that? You better abide in him and stay close to him. Um, On the one hand, you can give God glory for the part of the body of Christ that he has made you to play So there's this old Irish proverb, for every one mile of road, there's two miles of ditch. Mm. So on the one hand, you can be so identified by what you do that you lose who you are in that. And who are you if you don't do that thing anymore? Mm. On the other hand, you can be like the one talent guy in Matthew 25 and take the very gifts that God has given you and out of fear of idolatry even go and hide them Mm. And not use them, right? So, I mean, I am primarily a son of God, and Charles is primarily a son of God, but I am also a pastor and an author, and Charles is also a pastor and an author. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's incumbent upon us to realize that those titles or or markers are gifts from God Mm -hmm. to be used for His glory. They are not manufactured by me to impress anybody here. So before Jesus heals the paralytic, he says, your sins are forgiven. So why does the order of this matter that he says, your sins are forgiven, and then he heals him? Well, once again, um, signs are not to just demonstrate his raw power, but his redemptive purpose. And so what, eternally speaking, so what if he heals him? Mm. So the, the, the Talmud was like a commentary that rabbis could all pitch into and... Uh, and give give their own thoughts on what the Bible said. The thing grew to this pretty hefty tradition, and one of the traditions was that God could not or would not help a liar. Mm. So a part of what he's doing here is Jesus wants us to know that he came to seek and to save the lost, to give his life as a ransom for many, to forgive sins. 
He was not primarily a healer of bodies. He was primarily a saver of souls. Mm -hmm. But in order to prove to all the religious leaders that his word could be trusted, he says, we'll just get up and walk. Mm -hmm. I love when he asks the question, so what's harder? Mm -hmm. To forgive a man's sins or to heal a man's body? And at first reading, you would think, well, it's harder to, to heal somebody. Because I could just be like, your sins are forgiven. How do you know? Right. You don't know to the great white throne judgment. But if I say, not like through physical therapy and prayer, we're going to heal you over time, <clears throat> but in three, two, one, I mean, that is immediate. But in reality, which one is harder? Mm. Well, if you are the creator of legs, <laughs> making them work ain't hard. Right. I mean, if you can calm the wind and the waves, if you can speak everything to, into existence in six days, if by your power you hold all things mm. as they are, then get up and walk is no problem. But to forgive sin, it doesn't start at the cross. It starts the day that you are born and you live that perfect, sinless mm. life. You fulfill every jot and tittle of the law. Then you go to the cross, receive the full wrath of God, get sent into the darkness and come out with the keys to the kingdom of light and unleash people reconcile back to the Father. That's way harder. Sure. <laughs> uh, you talk about the four corners of the mat and the significance of those. Can you walk us through those yeah, four I, corners? Okay, so anywhere Jesus is and people are gathered in his name, that's a church. It's not a building. It's an ecclesia movement. Uh, in the 300s, they started using a German word, Kirche. Sounds like church. It means the Lord's house. It's a real shame. Mm. So this is this is church, man. People are gathered to hear about get close to Jesus. Well, surely our job is to bring people to him. And I just think it's a good mental image on it. So how do we do that? How do we how do you bring your friend going through this trial right now? How do you bring her to Christ? Well, number one is evangelism, like share your faith. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes that scares people when you just hear share your faith because maybe if you've had somebody share their faith with you in like an uber-aggressive way, like with a bullhorn and condemnation, you think, well, I'm not doing that. Well, I don't blame you. Sure. <clears throat> but it, it just means, why don't you just share an invitation? It could be as simple as that, right? It could be as simple as sharing your story. Like what you were talking about, I know when I get home from Israel, people are going to ask, how was your trip? And that is an opportunity for me to share my story, mm -hmm. right? It could be the whole kit and caboodle. Like you could be your own little Billy Graham and share the whole <laughs> gospel, right? The bad news, the good news, and the great news, yeah. right? That leads to the eternal news. But oftentimes it's just sharing a burden. Mm. Like how can I be praying for you? I don't care how atheistic somebody is. Boy, they sure will when times are tough. Right. They do want prayer. And then sometimes it's just sharing one more cup of coffee. Like, let's continue in this relationship. So that's part of it. Are you personally sharing your faith? Are you serving at your local church? Like the Bible says that the, the, the apostles and evangelists and teachers and shepherds are supposed to train up the saints for the works of righteousness, right? So this means that if, if you're an attender of your church and you believe in Jesus, then you are, you're a saint, and you're supposed to be trained up for the work of the ministry, that I actually got out of ministry when I went into what we call ministry. <laughs> right. My job is to train the saints for the work of the ministry. And we and the, the local church, like, see, the problem with this local church was they had run out of room. I mean, 
imagine if they had ushers to squeeze everybody in, right? <laughs> yeah. If they could move to two services. <clears throat> and so when you when you do that, you are partnering with the Holy Spirit of God to draw people to Christ. In fact, when when I first started to get to know Charles, he says, man, what can I do? What can I do? And he's a very gifted guy, New York Times guy. I mean, and I said, I said, uh, well, the trash needs to be taken out. <laughs> Straight up. Fact. And so for years and years and years, man, I'd get done preaching. That was my part. I'd get in my truck and be riding around the backside of the church to go home. And there's Charles Martin, who's, who's, you know, at one point was in Italy on a book tour. Don't let that skip you. Yep. I don't, maybe that's what we should be praying for, that this book will take us to Italy on a book tour. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's what he was doing, right? He was just serving the bride. So, yeah. so you share your faith, you serve the bride. One of the things you got to be willing to do is scoot over, man. Mm. Rip the roof off of the house. Do whatever it takes no matter what it costs you. And then the fourth corner is the most important. It's the Spirit of God. Mm. You could do all the things. You could write books, preach sermons, go on mission trips, but if the Spirit of God don't call your name, you ain't going to see him. Mm. That's so good. Anything you'd add, Charles, to any of those? You've talked before about that whole you know facilities thing. Part of it was I just fell in love with Kelly Adcox and Michael Porter, and I got to hang out with them and, it also gave me something to do where I could serve and I wasn't on. Mm. I didn't have to, I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't have to speak. I didn't have to come up. I just got to do and serve. And so I fell in love with it. And um, I don't know, I've, I've, I've switched. I've, I've, I don't know if you know this. I've, I'm, I'm now signed up with Greg to go to the, go to prisons because I'm going to get back into prison. So, yeah. awesome. but I do love I do love serving, and part of it was I just needed somebody to say, "Why don't you try this?" I'm like, okay, well, I'll try that. There, but but even what little I've done here, there are a thousand people here who have served in ten times the capacity. Mm. I'm amazed at I'm amazed at this body and the number of people that serve so selflessly yeah. over an extended period of time. I'm really we. They're a bunch. Yeah, serving just does something to you. I mean, and what, what you said, there's a spot for everyone, depending on what, you, what you're what you looking for. Like my husband, Wes, he is a bit of an introvert, and he has discovered that stuffing the seat backs of chairs is his sweet spot. That is like my nightmare, <laughs> doing a monotonous task and not talking to other people. But to him... It's during run-through before 722 on Thursdays. So it is like worship for him. He hears the band rehearsing and he's cleaning out whatever people have left behind in the seat backs. And it's just, it has filled his soul in such a way that I'm like, I, that would never happen to me. But there's just spots for everyone. Or like my dad has served on the welcome team for now 10 years since we opened the doors. The same position you know, normally people like graduate and they go to be a team lead or they kind of move on to more varsity level serve positions. Nope. He's the counter at 9am at the doors and he just loves it. He loves welcoming people and, but not like too much. He doesn't want to have, he's not like care team. He doesn't want to like get in there with the full conversation. <laughs> he just wants like the warm hospitality. But I just love that there really is something for everyone. And I've watched the fruit in my loved one's lives because of them serving. And you always end up getting more out of it. Like God 
ultimately ends up blessing you, I feel like, in a bigger way than the people that you're there to serve. Yeah, and and there are no menial positions in the body of Christ, man. Right. Here, here, this is a little bit of speculation on my part, but when Paul says, you know, now we see through a glass dimly, then we will see completely. And the Bible talks about laying down crowns in heaven at the feet of Jesus. What if a part of our reward in heaven that we're storing up there that Jesus talks about in the book of Matthew, what if when your dad gets to heaven... God allows him to see all the dots that were connected. And that person is like, you know what? I never, all I ever did is say hi to you, but it was a familiar, friendly face. And you have no idea what a big deal that was. You know, that 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 person's ears are more open to hear the sermon because they were greeted in a warm way. Or at the beginning of every sermon, when I say, if you got your Bibles, and I hope you do, and the person reached down and picked up a Bible that your husband, Wes, put there. And if he didn't do that job, there wouldn't be a Bible for them to read. And then the Word of God cannot go out if it's That's not right. there. So these four guys, you could see the one-to-one relationship about how God used them in this man's life. But I think when we get to heaven, man, a big part of what it means to be glorified. That's what the body says. You will be glorified. Mm. Well, what does that mean? Because he's the only one that deserves the glory. <clears throat> but maybe he will allow us to see whatever role we played. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I can't wait if this is true. I can't wait. So let's just say the 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 lines line up to say thanks for my obedience, right? Because people say that to me all the time. One of my one of the best compliments anybody can give me is not that was a good sermon. I don't. That's irrelevant. Mm. But people say thank you for saying yes to the Lord. Thank mm-hmm. you for your obedience. So then imagine. There's a bunch of people, and I get to turn to Coach Lee mm. and say, you didn't even know, did you? Right. I mean, of all the people at camp that you thought would be <laughs> doing this, I'm sure I would be it. Right. But thank you. Thanks for your obedience because without your – if you didn't pick up a corner of my mat when I was 15 years old, I wouldn't be standing here, and then that mm. would just continue. That's why it matters so much. You're partnering with the Spirit of God mm. in the salvation of his people. So good. And it's a great way to meet friends. It's a great place. When you serve alongside someone, I was talking to Pastor Britt about this last year sometime about people in their 20s finding community because it's hard to find community if you're single and you move to Jacksonville and you don't know anyone. He's like, they should serve. That was the whole answer. It's like a disciple group for sure too, but there's something about serving alongside one another that bonds you in a really beautiful way. And I think it's what you're saying because it's not just one plus one when you have the spirit of God at play, it just changes the whole equation and you're able to multiply whatever you're doing, whether it's friendship or serving or whatever it is, it's just multiplied because the spirit of God is a part of it. Also, when you serve, it will completely change the way you go to church. Yeah. Fact. Because you don't come in and be like, I hope they play my favorite song now. It's how can I help? And especially if you pick up the corner of a mat and share an invitation and one of your one mores comes with you, Everything changes, man. Yeah. Your prayer life changes. You're like, dear God, please, please, please open their hearts, right? Yes. Everything changes. Yeah, for sure. So what do you think happened after his sins are forgiven, Jesus heals him? What happens after? 
somebody looks up and says, somebody needs to fix my roof. <laughs> That's true. Where do the friends go? Like, where do they go from here? Um, well, I, I mean, I, I think that they are lifelong brothers in Christ now, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus says, uh, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Mm. So the first thing he did was was glorify God. I mean, what an appropriate response mm. to the miraculous healing. Yeah. So this guy's whole life would change. He could be involved in synagogue. We went to the synagogue where he would have attended after this. Mm. He wouldn't have been allowed on the inside of that pre this. So his community changes, his testimony changes, his perspective on life changes. And so for the rest of this guy's life, his four friends are like, wow, we got to be a part of that. I'm always amazed at the gospel writers because they're trying to give words to something that is really tough to difficult to explain. John is a great example of this. Like, how does he write his revelation? I don't know. I mean, he's trying to, he's trying to put words to stuff that there haven't been words for that stuff. Mm-hmm. But here I think Mark is probably, is, isn't Mark probably listening to Peter and, and, and transcribing Peter's Correct. account? Correct. So here he says, and he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God. As a writer, I look at that. I say to myself, okay, wait a minute. The son of God just said, rise, pick up your bed, go home. He just spoke that out into the stratosphere. And this dude who's been laying on this really nasty mat for a long time and has had no ability to get up and do anything, had no ability to obey this at all, probably comes unglued and loses his ever-loving mind. And I think he probably dances out of the house. He probably hugs people. He kisses them. He's screaming at the top of his lungs. He's fist pumping. You want to see a spider monkey on steroids? That's probably this dude. And his friends, look at them. They're probably crying their face off. They're probably laughing. They're probably dancing with him. They're probably hugging. There's probably a party following this that's probably not, it probably lit Capernaum on fire for a little while. But I'm just as the, the writer in me always looks at this, and I feel like the writers are always kind of downplaying what they're feeling and thinking because they don't really have language. Mm. Or they don't, I don't know, they don't, but I, when I read this, I think to myself, this guy lost his ever loving mind mm. in a great way. Yeah, that's good. The paralytic has an obvious need, right? He's been laying on the mat for however long and. It's obvious that he needs healing. And I think we live in a culture that it's really easy to get comfortable and not realize what dire needs we have. And Jesus forgives his sins first, revealing the actual most dire need that we have. But how can we become more aware or how can people become more aware of their needs the way that this man is aware of his needs? Um can't remember. I don't think we were recording yet when I asked you how you're feeling. Yeah. Because as you've mentioned, you are with child. Yes. <laughs> and uh, you said, like, as long as I'm distracted, I feel pretty good. Yeah. But it's not until I'm at home at night and the distractions go away and I go, this is miserable. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a pretty good parable. 
You're welcome. For the heart of man. (laughs) And uh, we just live in a world full of distractions, man. Mm. So people will not know they are in need as long as they can keep the noise of their life high enough and fast enough, loud enough. The problem is at some point, it all slows down for everybody. And um, maybe this is why Jesus starts the Beatitudes with blessed are the poor in spirit. Mm. Because it's not until you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy that you're ready for the kingdom of God. So it's coming. That You better hope and pray that it doesn't take a tragedy to wake people up to the reality of eternity, mm. that, that they have ears to hear God whisper, and that they have enough self-reflection to realize that I am spiritually bankrupt. Mm. Because, um, I mean, God will do whatever it takes to to pry our hands off of the things of this world so that we're able to grab onto him. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Would you add to that? I I think maybe the single most important word ever spoken out across the stratosphere is when Jesus says to Telestai, it is finished. I got to thinking on that about a year or two ago, like really what what all is finished? And then the Lord led me somehow to Galatians 3 and in all of his letters, Paul thanks God for the people that he's writing to, except the Galatians. He skips that entirely. And he, by the time he gets to f- chapter 3, he's befuddled and bewildered. And he says, Foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was personally portrayed as crucified? They saw. They're probably a spirit-filled, charismatic church. They saw Jesus crucified. They saw him resurrected. And some power had taken their eyes off the centrality and their focus on the cross and moved it aside. And now they're focused on something else. So I just began thinking and wrestling and I'm not the, I mean, their theologians have talked and spoken and written about this long before it ever, but I've just began sort of thinking about what was really exchanged. When Jesus says it's finished, what was exchanged? What was finished? And so I've just finished that book. It's called, it is finished. And it's a 40 day, I know it sounds like I'm tooting on, but I'm trying, I'm getting to a point. So just bear with me, but it's really a 40 day journey back to the cross every day. And in answer to your question, how do people, how do we, come to grips with our own need. For me, it happened when I, over about a six or eight month period of time as I wrote this, I came back day after day after day and I was confronted with what was paid. Because when you, when, when you or when I realized what was actually paid, then something happened, happened in me and I, be, I began to understand the depth of my own need. Mm. He says this all the time, we're not just sinners in need of a life coach. We, we are dead people who need to be made alive. And it, it, this thing that happened as I just kind of went on this journey back to the cross every day, as the, as the days unfolded and I walked through these stories of what was exchanged, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness. So he took our sin, gave us his. As I unpacked that, what I saw every day, was the exorbitant price paid. Mm-hmm. And I know me. The problem is actually worse than you think. Mm-hmm. I'm talking of myself. And I'm not worth the price. To me, I'm not. But for the joy set before him. And I'm not pretending to understand the totality of that joy. But we're a part of that. Mm-hmm. And for the joy set before him, he endured that. 
And so somewhere in this journey, this walk back, this returning to the placing my focus on the cross, he did a thing in me that was beautiful. And I, I simultaneously held two things, the crushing weight of my own need and the inexplicable joy knowing that he paid what he paid so that I didn't have to pay what that required. That's good. So I just had a thought. So why would these guys bring this man to Jesus? It says, you ask a question about faith. So you don't have faith in faith. Faith is the evidence of things unseen. It's not the amount of faith that saves you because Jesus says, if you got the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to a mountain, move. Hmm. Uh, Ephesians says that faith is a gift from God, so you can grow it, but you can't manufacture it. There has to be something in these men's lives that have experienced Jesus in one of the untold stories that John says. There's so much to write about, I can't even write it all down. For them to go, bro, just lay on the mat and trust me. I've I've been there, and he changed me, mm. and now I'm gonna take you. Yeah, that's good. And then and then I love this so much, man. And when Jesus saw their faith, he didn't even see the faith of the dude on the mat. Yeah, he right. saw the faith of the friends. I would hope and pray. You're talking about your friend. I'm hoping and praying that Jesus will see your faith in action to the point yeah. where it spills over into her and he looks at her and says, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Yes. And then heals her broken, broken heart yeah. over the reality that we live in a fallen, a broken world, but Jesus came to make all things new. Yeah. And that her baby, I hope she comes to Christ so that she can see her baby face to face one day in a new heaven and a new earth. And somehow then you will be able to say, God, you have been at work in all things for the good of those that love us and are called according to your purpose. That's so good. I'd love to close with this quote from this cha- from the end of this chapter. It says, doing this, meaning the four corners of the mat, will wrap arms around the broken and help bring them into the kingdom of God. And I feel like that's another way of saying we are a movement for all people to discover and deepen our relationship with Jesus Christ. Like this is what the church exists to do. We're not a hotel, we're a hospital. And um, it's a place to bring broken people in, not to just fix them, but to introduce them to the savior. Um, Can I pray for us as we close out? Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for the gift of friendship. And I thank you for the friends you've placed in, our lives. And I pray that if anyone's listening or watching and their desire is for some real rich Christ-centered relationships, Lord, I pray that you would answer that prayer for them. And God, I pray for the people feeling broken, feeling labeled by the world. I pray that they would know that they can be made whole in you and that the greatest miracle is their salvation and everything else falls in line after that. So I just pray that you would restore hope You would remind people of your goodness, your faithfulness. I pray that they would be encouraged and challenged to know that getting close to you, encountering Jesus is the only goal that we should have. It's in your great name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. (laughs) The end. You nailed it.